for this opportunity. Thank you for the time that we have had over the past uh, 12 weeks to think about these things and what your word has to say about biblical manhood and womanhood. And we pray, Father, that it would bear fruit in the lives of our brothers and sisters, in the lives of our church, in the lives of our world. And uh, generationally, Lord, we pray that our parents would be teaching these things to their children. And we ask, Father, that a biblical vision of manhood and womanhood would be evident in our lives and in the lives of our children. Well, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been, we're 12 weeks in. We have tonight, and then we have next week, and then we'll be done until next semester. So we'll have a break. Uh, we'll have a break, and then we'll pick back up after the new year. So two more times, tonight and then the next time. Uh, so tonight, we're answering common questions. So think Proverbs 18:17, which says, The one who states his case first seems right, till the other comes and examines him. So whether it's in a courtroom, conference room, coffee shop, or even within the walls of a local church, at one time or another we've all found ourselves participating in or watching two people engage in a conversation where one person is in disagreement with or at least questions the validity of another person's claim. Now maybe it's primarily on Facebook, although I wish it would take place in person. I think that's so much better. But in other words, it doesn't take very long to find out that in life, not everybody agrees on uh, what you believe about any given topic. And on the topic of manhood and womanhood, as it's taught in the scriptures, that's one of those areas that Christians have always disagreed, uh, that Christians haven't always agreed on. So that's going to be the focus of our talk today. So let me just summarize for us. Over the last 11 weeks, we've been staring at the important topic of biblical manhood and womanhood. And we've looked at our theological foundation uh, from creation in Genesis 1 and 2, where we find that both men and women were created in the image of God, and therefore by their very being or essence, men and women are equal in value and in worth and in dignity and importance. But although men and women are created equal by God, he's given them distinct dispositions, which they're going to display as they bear his image. In Scripture, these created inclinations are formalized into particular roles that men and women are called to fulfill in the home and in the church. So, whether you're single or married, serving in the local church, or living out your calling in the workplace, the essence of biblical masculinity and the essence of biblical femininity remain true. So if you look back at our handout, there are two summaries that we've been working with throughout our class. First, this, this, yes, this is on, on the back, on the back of that handout there. First, biblical masculinity is displayed in a sense of benevolent responsibility to work God's creation provide for and protect others, and express loving, sacrificial leadership in particular contexts by God's word. I know that's a wordy definition. We've fleshed that out over the course of our time together, so I'm not going to talk about that. And the same thing with the biblical femininity definition. Biblical femininity is displayed in the gracious disposition to cultivate life, to help others flourish, and to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in particular contexts 
prescribed by God's word. So what we're going to do this evening is seek to do two things at once. Number one, we want to recognize that not all Christians agree on the distinct roles that God has given to men and women, and particularly how that gets worked out in the local church and in the home. So not all Christians agree on that. We want to recognize that. Two, we want to answer some, though not all, of the most common questions to the Bible's teaching on gender. Okay? So that's what we're doing. Number one, number two. Now, you might be sitting there, Abby sitting there asking herself, maybe you are, why do people who profess to be Christians differ on this, on this issue? Why is there so much disagreement or seeming disagreement? I could think of multiple reasons why, and you could see there on your handout some things listed. Number one is culture. So all of us hold to certain values, expectations, and beliefs that are largely unquestioned. unquestioned. In other words, we grow up in a particular culture, and while culture has much that is beautiful and good, every human culture is fallen in different ways. Romans 1 says that we have all suppressed the truth of God. Jeremiah 17 says that our hearts are deceptive. So it's possible that certain invisible cultural values have shaped our instincts so that the Bible's teaching seems off in some way. Okay? That's possible. Tradition. Generally speaking, the longer you sit under a particular teaching, the deeper your conviction will be. And if that's what you were taught growing up, or if your particular denomination has taught this regularly, then you may begin to accept it without further investigation. That's another reason. Ignorance is another reason. If a person has only been exposed to one view, then they will have more difficulty weighing out if their position is right or not. Another example would be poor examples. So if someone's seen a particular view, and that's been used to support sin or abuse, this is naturally going to affect his or her perception of that view. Does that make sense? Second, or another reason... Incorrect interpretation of scripture. So simply uh, not reading a verse or a set of verses in its immediate context and how it fits with all of scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 calls us to rightly handle the word of truth. So sometimes we can just not interpret a passage rightly. Therefore, we come to a view that, that may not be in keeping with what the Bible is really saying. And then finally, another reason would just be unbelief in the authority of scripture. So sadly, there are those who believe themselves to be Christian, but, but, but only pick and choose, somewhat like a spiritual buffet. Uh, they believe themselves to be Christians, but they only pick and choose which parts of the Bible they believe are binding on their lives. Okay, So for all of those reasons, um, we need to be constantly submitting ourselves and submitting our understanding to the authority of God's word. So, let's just consider a series of questions slash objections to the Bible's teaching broken into two major categories. So, basically, this is like, for everything that we've been learning so far, what are objections that might come up to the, the vision of biblical manhood and womanhood that we've been presenting in this class? Two categories. Number one, biblical objections. So, that is based on particular biblical texts. And then more general objections. So biblical objections, more general objections. Objections to the views that we've been putting forth in this class. Some of these we've already talked about a little bit, but tonight we'll cover it a little bit more explicitly. So, biblical objections. 
Here's objection number one. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul says that all Christians are to submit to one another. Okay? That's what that verse says. All Christians are to submit to one another. Does that mean then that the Bible teaches mutual submission? And doesn't that rid us of the idea that the husband is the head of the wife? Do you see where that objection comes from? Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another. Okay? So then the objection would come, well, if there's mutual submission that's called for, doesn't, that, doesn't Ephesians 5.21 rid us of the need for the husband to be the head of the wife? We should just mutually submit to one another. That's the objection. Make sense? Well, first, I don't think it does. Okay, It, it doesn't uh, undo the husband's headship over the wife. And the main reason is really context. Uh, By the way, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open tonight. So we're just going to go to a couple of different scriptures. So I'd encourage you to just bust out your Bible um, and follow along. Um, So, first of all, submitting here is a participle, which means it's a description of what Paul teaches will characterize the wise, spirit-filled believer. In verses 15 and 18, Paul talks about Uh, us being wise, spirit-filled believers. This is a participle, submitting is a participle describing what it will look like, what the wise and spirit-filled believer will look like. Now, verse 21 serves like a heading that introduces the following section, 522 through 6.9. Paul goes on to describe three categories of relationships. Wives and husbands in 522 through 33. Children and parents in 6, 1 through 4. And then slaves and masters in, verses, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So 21 is a header over that whole section which covers three different categories of relationships. Does that make sense? Okay. Now without taking too much time, notice how verse 22, okay, right after in 21 he says submit to one another. In verse 22, Paul tells wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, but the husbands are never told to submit to their wives. In 6.1, children are instructed to obey your parents in the Lord, which necessarily involves submission. And note that parents are never instructed to submit to their children. Think of how disastrous that would be if a parent has young children. That would be terrible. All right. In verses, and then in 6.5, slaves are instructed to obey your earthly masters. And again, masters are never instructed to obey or submit to their slaves. So, really, what Ephesians 5.21 means when he says submit to one another, he's saying submit to one another according to the authority and order established by God. Right? Because that's what he goes on to describe. So Ephesians 5.21 does not undo male headship over, uh, over our wives, okay? Because the rest of the verses go, out to f- go on to flesh out what it looks like to mutually submit to one another in these particular contexts. Husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, masters. Does that make sense? So that's number one. I'm going to go through these and then give you opportunities for questions, okay? Uh, Number two, 
in uh, 1 Timothy 2.12, isn't Paul teaching that women can preach, teach, at least under the delegated authority of the elders? So, in other words, though a woman can't hold to the office of elder, can she preach underneath the oversight of her elders? This is what some would say. In this verse, Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's simply very clear in context that Paul is not speaking to the office, that comes later in chapter 3, but to the related yet distinct functions of teaching and exercising authority. Verse 11, right before it, makes it clear that the godly woman's attitude and disposition is to be one of learning and listening with the purpose of submitting to biblical teaching and biblical leadership. And as you keep reading on in verse 13, Paul writes, For, because, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And from this reasoning, we see that Paul grounds his argument in creation... Genesis 2, which is always binding and transcultural and not simply just one of context, like in Ephesus, which is where the church was that Timothy was ministering. So, so can women teach? Can women teach? In other words, do they have the ability to teach? Yes, they can be exceptional at explaining God's word to God's people. Actually, this Sometimes drives me nuts, sometimes I'm very grateful for it. I'll be talking to my wife, and then she just explains something unbelievably beautifully that I was trying to explain, and it came out all garbled. Or I'll be talking about something, she's like, oh, and she comes up with this fantastic illustration. And I'm like, baby, you should be a preacher. Of course, we're kidding. But I'm like, wow, you have a really good illustration. Um, So, they can't, yes, can women teach? Yes, they can be exceptional explaining God's word to God's people. Therefore, should they teach? Well, absolutely. We desperately need women to teach in a variety of contexts, some of which are shown in the scriptures. So, for example, Titus 2, 3 through 4, older women are exhorted to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and love their children. Proverbs 31, 26, the virtuous woman is described as she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Proverbs 1.8, the son is commanded, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Ephesians 4.15, and Paul instructs all believers, men and women, to speak the truth in love to one another for their spiritual upbuilding. So, those are all wonderful things, but let's reaffirm the particular point we've been discussing. Should women teach in mixed settings, adult men and women are present in the public assembly of the church, not according to what we see in the scriptures, particularly Second Timothy or 1 Timothy 2.12 with the teaching and authority, and in 1 Timothy 3 with the qualification of elders. You could also look at 1 Timothy 3.15. So, that's, that's number two. Number three, does Galatians 3.28 remove gender as a basis for distinction of roles in the church? So, Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, 
There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in other words, the, the argumentation goes, well, based on that verse, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female. Well, then that, that, that wipes out roles because there's no, there's no difference. There's, there's, there's nothing there. Does that make sense? You see how that argument goes? It is true that Galatians 3.28 is dispensing with gender dis- distinctions, but only in a very specific context. Galatians 3.28 affirms the full equality of male and female in Christ, as the text says. That phrase, in Christ, refers to the covenantal union of all believers in the Lord. Paul is saying, I think this is so helpful, by the way, so just grab a hold of this. Paul is saying that in the context of salvation, which Galatians 3 is all about, the justification of sinners by faith apart from works. And the great divisions that separate classes of people from one another are all erased as it relates to justification by faith alone. They are all erased, those distinctions. Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, man and woman, they are not saved in different ways, nor do they inherit different promises from God. No matter what one's ethnicity, gender, or social standing, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's, that's what that verse is saying. It's not saying gender roles have been dispensed with. It's saying that everybody is on an equal footing as it relates to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. There's, everybody has access to it. And Paul isn't wiping out distinctions altogether, by the way. He's not wiping out distinctions altogether. After all, he can still speak to Jews and Gentiles as Jews and Gentiles. Think about that. And he can speak to slaves and masters as slaves and masters and to men and women as men and women. So Galatians 3.28 is, is not saying that all roles have been obliterated. How about number four? Didn't Priscilla teach Apollos in Acts 18.26? So in this verse we read, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue... But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Exactly. But when Priscilla, I need you, I need more of you on Sunday morning, all right, big guy? Well, actually, your dad does that for you, so, um, which I appreciate. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, many have asked, doesn't this show that in the early church, that the early church didn't exclude women from the teaching office of the church. So that's the, that's the argument that, that follows sometimes. You see, Aquila and Priscilla did this, therefore in the early church women were not excluded from the teaching office of the church. That's, that's the argument. Now, of course, Priscilla helped teach Apollos. She did. And praise God for how she clearly helped put this fervent yet misguided teacher on the right path. Nothing in our understanding of Scripture says that when a husband and wife visit an unbeliever or a confused believer, uh, or anybody else for that matter, that the wife has to be silent. Scripture doesn't teach that at all. But note, this situation is private, and Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside. 
It doesn't speak to whether their instruction was ongoing. The text says they explained things to him correctly in what was essentially a crisis situation of false teaching. The text simply doesn't speak of the question of whether women should teach publicly in the gathered church. For that, we have to go back to 1 Timothy 2, which we talked about earlier. Okay? Does that make sense so far? Okay. Number five. Don't you think... So here's the, here's the, other, um, here's the other argument. Number five. Don't you think that all these texts we've studied are simply a temporary compromise with the cultural status quo, while the main thrust of Scripture is towards the leveling of gender roles. To that I would say, it is true that Scripture does sometimes seek to regulate relationships that are broken without condoning those as permanent ideals. So just for example, think about what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Matthew 19, 18. Okay? Having said that, <clears throat> we can't understand gender roles to be in that category, though. Why? Because, for one thing, the role distinctions that we've been talking about are rooted in created order. Just answer me this. Are they rooted in created order before the fall or after the fall? Before the fall, exactly. So the redemptive thrust of the Bible does not at all aim at abolishing gender distinctions and roles, but redeeming them. I think it's an important sentence for you to just remember. The redemptive thrust of the Bible does not at all aim at abolishing gender distinctions and roles, but redeeming them. Because we saw them before the fall. So then we know that they were fundamentally part of that, that, that sweep over which God said, ah, this is... Very good, okay? Also, and maybe most clearly, the Bible contains no condemnations of loving headship in marriage and, the, and in the church, nor does it give any encouragements to abandon it. So I just don't think it's a good argument to say that the, that the redemptive trajectory of the Bible is towards leveling or abolishing these things. It, it, it seems like that's not the case. It seems like it's redeeming them. Um. Let me do one more and then give you opportunity to ask questions on any of these. I know this may feel like fire hose-ish. So what about Deborah's leadership in the book of Judges? Uh, we talked about this in one Q&A, which is fun. Let's talk about it again. Doesn't that undermine the understanding of gender roles that we've been teaching in this class? By the way, I went to an ordination council of a minister um, who argued on the basis of Deborah that women should be pastors in churches. So that is an argument that's used. Um, <clears throat> so, any faithful student of the Bible should affirm that women play significant religious and even at times crucial leadership roles in the Bible. So, for example, just think about Esther and her role in the deliverance of the Jews. Okay, But think about two things. Number one, most examples of female leadership appear in roles other than those of the highest human religious authority. Okay, so while there were, uh, while there are prophetesses like Huldah, that would be Second Kings twenty-two, and in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, and Anna, like Luke two thirty-six, in the New Testament, it's worthy to note that there are not any women priests, women heads of tribes, or women kings. Now in Second Kings eleven, 
I know you're probably thinking about this yourself. You're thinking, what about Athaliah in 2 Kings 11? You were all thinking that. Athaliah wrongly usurped the throne, was a murderer, and the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So, not a good example. Okay. When we open the New Testament, we also read that Jesus chose his 12 disciples, later named apostles, who were all male, and there is no evidence that there were ever women pastors in the early church. The Bible just seems to provide a general pattern of male leadership in God's people. Okay? Now, but back to the question, what about Deborah? So, what about Deborah? Well, she was both a prophetess and a judge, and is, she is the notable exception. Uh, however, the events recorded in the book of Judges are not illustrating God's ideal for his people. This book is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Judges is a tragic cycle of one mistake after another. And in fact, and this is how you know, this is a Bible study tool, you look for repeated words or phrases to help you interpret things rightly. Can anybody remember like a consistent phrase that's used in the book of Judges? I bet you some of you can. What is one phrase that's repeated over and over in the book of Judges? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is like the Holy Spirit saying, not prescriptive. Don't take these things and, 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 and consider them to be normative for the church right now. Basically, thinking about judges, given the awful state of Israel, Deborah's judgeship is recorded not to signal that female leadership is ideal in every time and every context. Rather, it shows just how far from God's design and purposes Israel has strayed. Properly read in context, Deborah's role as a judge serves as God's indictment of Israel. Okay, The fact that Barak, a man, would see the glory of battle go to a woman, Deborah, for his unwillingness to faithfully, courageously follow God just underscores the point. Okay, This is an indictment of Israel. But that doesn't mean that we should in any way despise or ignore Deborah. Okay, Not at all. Uh, we should be thankful for her and for all the ways she followed God faithfully when Israel abandoned him. Remember, the issue has never been can a woman lead or teach, etc.? The issue is not ability, but oughtness. Okay? The issue is not ability, but oughtness. Deborah is a strong woman who teaches us much about how to stand up for what is right in a tragic mess of things. She's a wonderful example of character and courage to us. And she is a reminder that it's not necessarily wrong for women to take a job that involves high levels of leadership and authority. When it comes to questions like what jobs are most appropriate for women, Scripture doesn't give us black and white laws, but rather it gives us principles and wisdom. However, there's no compelling argument that Deborah's role at this season in Israel's history somehow undoes the clear meaning of the New Testament texts about men's and women's roles in the church. Okay, so we've looked at biblical uh, objections. In other words, some folks who would take various parts or pieces or thoughts or theological reflections from Scripture and then would argue against what we have been working through over the course of our class over the last 12 weeks. Let me just pause there and say, 
any questions on that or any anything strike you, any reflections? Got six things there. Any further questions on those things? Or any reflections on them? Yeah, Matt. Um, we talked, not in this subject, but we talked in the past about like there's different tier issues on which case are like fundamental Christianity. Like, you have first tier issues, which there's no budget on, and then you have yeah. second and third tier issues. So like, where would you put some like a church that has a female pastor? Hypothetically, let's say she's preaching the gospel, the same exact as let's say you are, but where would you put that as a tier issue? In which case we would draw a distinction in lines in how we would navigate just thinking through that. Yeah, that's, I don't a, really see any that's a good question. We see female pastors that are preaching the same as we're preaching, so I'm just curious. Uh, that's that's a good that's a good question. So let me remind you of the basic tiers of of what Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, calls theological triage, which I think is kind of a helpful concept for us as Christians to get a quick handle on how important is a particular issue. You know, when you go in to get triaged at an emergency room, they're trying to figure out what's most important and life threatening. We're going to deal with that immediately. That's high priority, and what's a sprained ankle. That's still something to be addressed, but not nearly as important as you know somebody who's been shot. So theological triage, um, there are ideas of, of three different tiers. Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3. Tier 1 would be um, things that are salvific. Uh, you can't deny these things and still remain a Christian. So denying Jesus' full divinity and humanity. Denying the Trinity, right? Saying that salvation is something other than by faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. Okay, Things like that. That would be tier one issues. Um, things that if you deny this, you're not a Christian. Tier two issues would be things that are, you can be a Christian, we can disagree on these things, but it, it probably would be better for us to not do church together. Okay, Examples would be differences between Baptists and Presbyterians on, on baptism. Okay, we have such a fundamental difference on our understanding of how baptism works that it, it that both Baptists and Presbyterians look at each other and say, "I love you, give me a big Jesus hug." But it's probably best if you are in a Presbyterian church and I am in a Baptist church, and we're both free to follow our convictions as we see the Scripture lining them out. Um, and 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 you can be like really wrong in these things. Like I think Presbyterians are very wrong. Hear me, okay? But they're Christians. Okay, but we probably shouldn't do church together. That would be an example of a tier two. Tier three are things that like, I think you should be able to disagree on this and remain in the same church and be happy, happy, happy with one another. Okay, um, things like, you know, what does modesty look like or your view on the end times or uh, Calvinism, Arminianism, things like that. Those are third tier issues that we should just be able to reason with one another and be in different places but still in the same church. Uh, I think this, whether or not uh, you believe a woman can be a pastor, I believe that would be a second tier issue. So uh, we're all going to find out that we believed wrong things, even wrong things that were unhelpful and harmful uh, when we get to heaven one day. I do think that this is an unhelpful and harmful uh, teaching to believe that someone, you could be a, 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 the woman could be a pastor. I think that's, I think that's wrong. Uh, and I think it's harmful and hurtful. 
But I don't think it necessarily means that person's not a Christian. Uh, I mean, what's a Christian but somebody who has trusted in Jesus Christ and is following them in obedience? Now, you could say, but is that person really following in obedience if they're, if they're disobeying in this major category? Yes, I'd say they are disobeying in this major category, but I think the overall trajectory of life will show whether or not someone's a true Christian or not. And I think you could be a true Christian and, and be an egalitarian, which is the opposite position from what we are. So I think this is a tier two issue. Um, so uh, I would just say I would not encourage anyone to go to a church where there's a female pastor. And I would typically say that as a general rule, those churches that begin to go down that are going to begin to move towards a more liberal trajectory of things. I'm talking theological liberalism here, not cultural or political liberalism. I'm talking about theological liberalism. Because I think the scriptures are so clear on this that if you let go of this, it's going to be indicative of other things that you're going to want to let go of. Uh, and so I realize that it's a slippery slope argument. Okay, If you let go of this, you're going to be liable to let go of other things. But I do also want to be fair and to say that uh, there are uh, charismatic brothers and sisters that are as conservative as the day is long, but they're just weird on this, and they believe it's okay for women to be pastors. And they are not in any way sliding towards liberalism. They're charismatic, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing within evangelicalism. Um, they're not sliding towards liberalism, but they believe this is okay. Um, so, well, there you have it. Um, so, does that make sense? I hope I've an answered that helpfully uh, and honestly for you. Any other questions on what we've talked about so far? That was a great question. Thanks. Okay, let's, let's talk about general objections and then have more time for some questions or reflections after that. Um, I think these are really good, by the way. So just, if you're tired or something, do jumping jacks. Um, go to my office and get a cup of coffee from that Keurig and then come on back. Uh, all right. General objections. Does teaching male headship encourage domestic abuse? Um, I, hear, I hear this, and, and this is out there. Okay. Does teaching male headship encourage domestic abuse? Some have argued that the biblical teaching on gender roles isn't just outdated, but that it perpetuates harm. Uh, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning story on domestic abuse in South Carolina in 2015 suggested that, quote, deeply held beliefs about the sanctity of marriage and women's place in the home lead to a culture where abuse is very prevalent. Okay? Now, as believers, we have to mourn such egregious sin and stand up for victims. We recognize that the world has tragically fallen and we long for righteousness to prevail. And tragically, women are mistreated in both traditional and progressive settings. Just look at the recent revelations of how many women uh, have been taken advantage of in Hollywood or in Silicon Valley. Okay? Uh, so, we've got to stand firm in the teaching that the Bible nowhere justifies a man abusing a woman in any way, be it physical, verbal, or emotional, and the Bible nowhere calls a woman to submit to such abuse. To that end... We should never confuse the Bible's teaching with any form of traditionalism that endorses or leads to chauvinism or oppressive forms of patriarchy. And I, I want to put oppressive forms of patriarchy in there because I actually believe in patriarchy. We're, we're actually teaching patriarchy. Everybody get patriarchy versus matriarchy? Patriarchy is 
the husband is the head of the home. Matriarchy is the mom is the head of the home. Okay, so the Bible teaches patriarchy. Now, when you hear patriarchy in the culture, it's a, uh, it's a bad word, okay? So if you're being referred to as a patriarchal person in the culture, just know that you're, that's, that's a really bad thing in their eyes, okay? But, um, but the Bible does not teach oppressive forms of patriarchy, okay? It does not. To justify domestic violence in the name of Christianity is appalling. It undermines one's profession to be a Christian, and God is going to pour out his fierce wrath on men who unrepentantly misuse their authority to harm others. All right? God cares deeply about those who are most vulnerable, most susceptible to abuse, and he cares deeply about how authority is exercised. The misuse of authority is fundamentally a lie about God who's instituted it for our good, as Brad so helpfully explained to us today. But if it's not used for our good, then it is a misuse, and that's a bad thing. And abuse is clearly a misuse. To the contrary... And this is where I think it's so funny that sometimes complementarians um, like me, we can get in our shell and we get a little bit nervous to talk about what we actually believe about biblical manhood and womanhood and husbands being the leaders in their homes and in the churches. We get a little bit nervous to talk about it like we don't. But it ought to be the case that women feel most prized in Bible teaching churches where they are uniquely loved as being women and prized for being women, where their distinct attributes and contributions are cherished and exalted, they are not ignored or suppressed. And I would just say pray in our congregation that we would always stand up for the good of women generally and for women in this church in particular. And I just believe that whatever the Bible teaches is best for us. So that's why I'm just happy to have this class because I think, I think women flourish under husbands that love Jesus and unabashedly say, I'm the leader of my home. Like, that's what every wife actually wants. <laughs> it's a good thing, so we shouldn't be shy about it. Uh, so that's, that's that. Next one. If God has, and, and some of you are going to be, how can this be possible? Just, just listen to the question. If God has genuinely called a woman to be a pastor, who are you to say that it can't be done? Okay. If God has genuinely called a woman to pastor, who are you to say she can't be one? Well, the answer here, and I have heard this, by the way. I've heard that question. The simple answer here is that we don't believe that God calls women to be pastors. So that's because God acts always, without exception, consistently with his word. So if the Bible teaches that God wills for men alone to bear the primary teaching and governing responsibilities in the local church... That is the office and function of an elder or pastor. Then we don't think that God will ever act contrary to that. Okay, so I would just say I don't think it's the case that you think God's called you to pastor. I'm just saying He hasn't, according to His Word, because He acts consistently with His Word. Okay, maybe He's calling you to serve Him in some other significant capacity. Don't confuse the two and don't think that just because you can't serve as a pastor doesn't mean you can't serve in unbelievably significant ways in your local church or on the mission field. Think of all the women who served in the mission field. Um, okay, next one. It's just not fair. Okay, it's just, it's just not fair. At the end of the day... I think many of our common objections to the Bible's teaching on gender fall into this category. 
In our age of equal rights, to deny access to any position or reserve any duty for one gender alone is, is just patently seen as sexist and downright unfair. But we just got to remember, Christians, that authority structures don't entail greater human value or essential superiority of those in their charge. It doesn't. And it doesn't minimize the human value or imply essential inferiority of those under their charge. It's just, it's just a logical fallacy that because there's authority and someone's under it, that this person is somehow greater and this person is somehow lesser. That's not true. Uh, that's the fundamental error of our cultural presupposition. That for two people, our cultural presupposition is that for two people to be equal... They must be able to do the same thing. The assumption is that we can't have differentiation of, and hierarchy without also having inferiority of dignity and worth. That's our cultural presupposition, and I would just say the Bible takes a hammer to that and, and knocks it into a bunch of pieces. The fundamental issue is one of biblical authority. And at the end of the day, Christians have to happily, we should happily be willing to submit to God's word even when it challenges our instincts or our preferences or our cultural presuppositions. Okay? So, uh, I want to encourage you guys by the reality that men and women experience their full humanity when they function in the manner God intended in his creation for them. We are most free as humans when we affirm the way God made us to be. That is, that is when we will experience life to its fullest. Fullness is when we step into what he has for us according to his word. His instruction to us, his word, that is not a burden for us. His instruction, his word is given to us for our good. It's given to us in kindness and he actually invites us into the abundant life that only he can give. And roles and biblical, uh, an understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood are, are, are key here. So, why does all of this matter? Well, gender, gender is central to our personhood and how God made us. That's why all this matters. It's because gender is central to our personhood and how God made us. It affects who we are, our sense of identity. It affects our individual discipleship. It affects how we act as husband and wife and how we parent. It affects how we live together as members of a local church. And it affects our witness to the world. So this, this matters. And I would just say be confident in what the Bible has to say. And be confident that it's for our good. And don't be shy about it or apologetic for it or reserved about it. Instead, just be happy because these things are good. So let me just stop there and uh, open it up for questions or comments. Missy. And Joyce Meyer comes on the radio. I actually can't remember if Joyce Meyer is... I, I, I'm sorry? She's prosperity gospel? I would turn it off because of that. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't put her in my mind right off the bat, but uh, 
So if she's prosperity, then I would just turn it off because of that. Um, as a general rule, I just, I'm not a huge fan. I can't say this is righteousness or unrighteousness. So this is more me speaking, not necessarily what you have to do. Um, but as a general rule, I just think it's, it's unhelpful to um, perpetuate uh, big celebrity-like women teachers. I don't think that's helpful uh, for the overall pattern that we see in Scripture that it should be men who are in authoritative teaching positions. Uh, and so for that, for that reason, I would encourage you not to make that, you know, the main... I'm just uncomfortable with it. Uh, I think that's I think that's appropriate. I think that's helpful. I think it's outside the context of the local church, and um, it's you know, assuming it's underneath the umbrella of a doctrinally sound uh, organization in, in some sense, and you, and you understand the context of context of it. It's a husband and wife teaching about uh, you know, parenting, being a husband and wife, or if it's if it's a wife teaching about being a godly wife, like I think, I think all that makes sense. Uh, I think what the scriptures specifically prohibit is a woman teaching in the context of the gathered church, where there are both men and women present. Yes. Oh, that's a great question. So throughout church history, um, there have been... Essentially, we would hold it to the position that you could be single and be an elder. Generally speaking, um, I think, you know, because most men are um, married, uh, just like most women are married, I think most elders are going to be uh, married, but I don't think they have to be. Yeah, it's assuming he's married. I think the purpose there, I think what that scripture is, the intention of that verse is to teach that he has to be a one-woman man. He can't be unfaithful to his wife. So I think it's teaching faithfulness to the wife. I think it's not necessarily saying if he's not married, he can't be an elder. I think the purpose of the verse is to say he needs to be faithful to his wife. Good question. Other questions? Brad. I don't know if I have wisdom on that. 
Brad? Yeah, and I said I don't have particular wisdom on that. Any other questions? If I don't feel like I have any wisdom on it, I'll be honest and just say, I'm not sure. Thanks, bro. Good call. She sends me messages quite often, written or verbal, that are very helpful. Yeah, and I learn, and I glean, uh, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Matt. They can. I would encourage uh, two major encouragements. Number one, I would encourage you to encourage them to go to um, a Bible college that uh, that is explicitly complementarian. Okay, so they're going to get robust theological education underneath the umbrella of what we've been talking about. So they have these commitments, and they're going to they're going to help launch into ministry. And mission that is appropriate. Uh, so I would say find a Bible college or a theological seminary like Voice College or Southern Seminary that is explicitly complementarian. Okay, so that's number one. And then number two, I would just say start praying for and be and think about if you want to be married, then you need to be really mindful of who you're marrying. Does that does that man have ambitions for ministry and uh, and if he doesn't, then you shouldn't pursue him unless you feel like uh, you're willing to let go of that because you need to follow his lead. So if you really feel like you're called to some form of full-time ministry, then be thinking about who your husband is and does he feel called to full-time ministry. And that's who you need to think about dating slash courting, whatever you're going to call it and however that's going to work for you. That's what I'd say. Those are great questions. Well, let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters, and thank you for your word, and thank you that you give to us all things necessary for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.